Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to the end of the chapter. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. halfway if you're with us for the first time uh great to have you you're warmly warmly welcome uh i i'm going to talk for the next half hour or so and uh we call this part of our service you know if you need a church or need a god a sermon or a message or something like that and typically we would look at a, a part of the bible uh, through which we believe god uh shows us who he is and what he's like and we can encounter him leads us to that so that's what we're going to do and what we're going to start doing again today is something we sort of uh, finished sometime through last year we looked through a part of the bible called the book of acts and uh, we're resuming a series of messages that just journeys reads and thinks and reflects through this book of acts today is just the first one in the next sequence of sermons we're going to look at in this message or the series It'll take us up to Easter. Now, I'll position you in this story of Acts towards the end of this message. For now, would you, would you just come with me? Let's, let's just step into it. We'll unpack a little bit of what goes on there. And then I'll, then I'll turn it to us and say, well, what does this mean for you, for me, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian? I mean, what, what is it? What does it say to us? How does it change our expectations, how we should live as Christians? That's what we want to end with. Okay. Let's jump on in. I'll skip over that part. We read that a man called Peter, he's one of the earlier followers of Jesus. He's going about uh, a place called uh, Lydda and Joppa uh, on the map. Just so you know, 
you know, the whole church explosion starts there in Jerusalem and much of what we dealt with in Acts so far centred around that area geographically. Then we had a bit more happening sort of through Samaria here uh, last time we looked at this. And this time around, oh, this is a, an awkward map. We'll go back to the other one. Here's Joppa and Lydda somewhere around there. So they're sort of getting out of Jerusalem a bit. The, the story is moving out. Why it's moving out is because some people in places outside of Jerusalem have started to believe in this man, Jesus. The message of Christianity is that God loves you. Is that God has sent his son to die on a Roman cross for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin and the sin of every human being who ever lived so that if we believe in him, he's going to fix you. He's going to fix you. He's going to restore you. He's going to redeem you. That's going to start with you being put in a right relationship with God who you may for the first time in your life realize is real, exists, loves you. You can know him. He can know you. You can live with him. And gradually you enter a process where really your life is being changed and transformed where in the fullness of time, we're going to talk more about this, you will be redeemed, restored spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, every other ilia I can think of in the grace of Jesus to everything that a human being was always supposed to be and created to be. God seeks to achieve that in you. That's the message. It's the message of Christianity. I can even ask you this morning, at this point, are you, are you there? I don't know. I don't know everyone here. But I want you to know that this is the God who we come to worship. This is the God whom we believe in. This is the God who's been encountered by many over the years and the centuries. And this is the message that was taken to, to Lydda and to Joppa and all over the, the world that some people are starting to believe. And, and this man, Peter, goes and I don't we'll talk a lot more about him in the weeks to come. It's not a checkup journey. I think he he partly went to see it for himself, the legitimacy of other people believing this, and to uh, encourage them. To bless them. And as he does so, we read of some remarkable events, didn't we? What took place? Paralytic man, Eugenius, Peter looks at him. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and walk. Peter's seen this before. He's seen Jesus do this. And this man gets up and walks. Uh, note what Jesus says to him. Uh, sorry, Peter says to him. Jesus Christ heals you. Healing and restoration comes from Jesus. Everything that happens in Acts comes from Jesus. Everything that's good about your life, whether you know it or not, comes from Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The act of Jesus. Jesus Christ heals you. <laughs> this happens and the, 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 the reaction or the, the response of the people in, uh, in Lydda is that many turn to the Lord. People look at that sort of stuff and go, well, maybe there is 
legitimacy about what the people have to say about this man, Jesus. I mean, that's a strong sign, isn't it? Strong endorsement. The guy was paralytic for eight years, walks. Large as that is, gets bigger when we read the next bit. Neighbouring town, Penguin, Alderston, whatever, Yopper, disciple named Tabitha. I want you to just, at this point, encounter this disciple of Jesus. She's already a believer in Jesus. But she's a remarkable example, I think, to us. Do you feel the emotion around that scene where she's died and this room is filled with all these widows, marginalised people who were broken, who had no hope, who had no future, to whom she has provided a home, a purpose, a dignity, a love. This is a well-to-do woman. She has means, she has skills, she has wits, she is a leader, and she makes an enormous impact in the world through what she does for these widows. You know, I just, I just want to, and I don't want to play the gender game, but I want to encourage you, women. You have an enormous role to play in the kingdom of God. Acts is often interpreted and overlooked as all the stuff Peter and Paul did. Look at Tabitha. Look at your life. And consider where God's call sits, his purpose with your life and understand that God has a place in his economy and usage of people, of all people. Tabitha proves that to us. The strength and the force of her connection with those whom she loved and was loved by is, is, is just so strong here. She dies, they call her, and then, you know, if, if the, 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 the paralysed man wasn't a big enough deal... Um, the ante just ups, doesn't it? Peter sent them all out of the room. I find that interesting. I don't really know why. He sent them all out of the room at the point where he prays for her. Can't say. I suppose what I can say is this isn't a, this isn't a healing crusade. This isn't a public thing. I mean, it, the news becomes public, but the thing itself is done in absolute private. It's him and her. If, if you could be a fly on the wall in that moment, what, I mean, just leaves so much for the, for the imagination, I suppose. But, but she comes back to life by the power of, of, of Jesus. And, and, and how incredible, I, I, I quite love the, the bit. I didn't highlight it where she, she comes back to life. They go out of the room. Peter's first response is to show her to the believers, especially the widows. Isn't that cool? It's a sense of, no, the rest of you go away. This is not really for the, the famous. This is for the, for the marginalised, for the down and out, God's heart for them, the encouragement, the blessing that comes from that. And the same response again in the crowds that we see, linking these miracles, both of them together very strongly with a the theme. This became known all over Yopa. Many people believed in the Lord. Many people believed in the Lord. The ultimate goal of every sign, every miracle, I think, 
the book of Acts is this. Many people believed. Believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Believed that he was the Son of God, come to die for the forgiveness of sin so that you may be restored. As you've seen in the story of Acts, Exhibit A, Exhibit B. Eunius, Tabitha. But now comes the question, doesn't it? Late last year, tragedy strikes Hillcrest. There are people there who prayed for the deceased children, Christians. Praying, I think, with genuine motives, doing what Peter did. Praying that this Lord Jesus would bring him back to life. Was it right for them to do so? A mission statement as a church incorporates these words, encourage, empower, ignite. Igniting particularly the faith of those who don't know Jesus. Is it right for us to expect that as we live out the mission of Jesus that this is how Jesus would seek to strengthen, validate the word about him that we put out? Should we expect this? Should we expect to see this in our day and age? Should leaders, some or all, expect to do what Peter has done? Is this part of the mission of the church today? I think it's one of... the most incredible questions that Christians grapple with in our day and age. And we have been here in Acts before, but I'm going to hover around a bit again today because it's over a year ago and many of you are new and I'm still grappling with this and you are too, so let me unpack a little bit what I think is the best way to answer this question. Christians answer this in three ways, roughly speaking. There are those who say, let's say over in this corner, no, Uh, You and I as Christians today ought not to ask for the types of signs and wonders that we see in Acts. Right? Reason for that is God gives these signs and wonders in incredible manifestations of his power at certain times in history, most notably when he does new things. When Jesus comes, it's a massive new thing, right? Uh, in the early church, it's a massive new thing, and God kind of launches that with a lot of these things. And then it kind of dries up. So, so, so Old Testament history, they say, would be the same. You see it. Sorry, if you're new to church here, there might be jargon here. Uh, the Exodus and a lot of these things, and then for 4,000 years, not too much sporadically here and there. You see some miracle signs or wonders, but then it kind of has to wait till Jesus. And then it dries up again. And so it goes. So therefore, you and I, no, probably not. Others on the other side of the scale would say, yes, we should. Always. Always expect, and it should be the normal experience of the church that when we pray, for healing to occur, such as Peter did, perhaps even resurrection from the dead, it should happen. This is the destiny of the church. 
This is how it should go for Christian leaders, for every Christian, the level of authority with which Jesus has endowed his followers. And there's a third camp wedged in between the two, which I'll advocate to you today is the one that I recommend. It's not never, it's not always, it's sometimes. Sometimes. See, the reality that we get if we read our Bibles very carefully, all throughout the New Testament, is that there's something about this restoration that Jesus has come and promised to do in you and in me. There's something about it that's, that's already here. It's happening, but it's not complete. It's not full. You have eternal life. You've got it. It cannot be taken away from you. You're living in it. You've begun it in full, and you still have to die. Tabitha still had to die. Imagine dying twice in your life. That's a thought. I just, there's no point to it, but it's just interesting. What a thing. Her body still saw decay. You still had to die. The Bible tells us we're adopted as the children of God, and yet then there's, there's strong verses in the New Testament. Your adoption is yet to be completed. And, and by the way, all of this happens if you're new to church. Christians believe that Jesus Christ will return. God is going to remake this earth into a, a new heavens, a new earth. You're not going to go to heaven somewhere. Heaven is going to come to you. This earth will become a place of absolute perfection. No more death, crying, tears, pain, mistreatment, all of it. The fullness of what Jesus has come to begin will be then. Okay? In the meantime, you know that God is powerfully changing you already. He's begun redeeming you and restoring you and making you into the person who you never could be on your own with immense power in the Holy Spirit as you become holy. And yet you know you will never be fully changed until in that new heavens and new earth. You'll always grapple with your sin. You see, there's this incredible tension that's set up in the Bible. And so the question then becomes, how does that drive how you and I live when it comes to things like Hillcrest? What should we do? How should we pray? I'll, I'll tell you how I think I will pray. And this is shifting the whole theory from being abstract to being a bit more real. And I will want to recognise here that I'm very ignorant in what I'm going to say because I haven't lived through this yet. Some of you have. So please teach me afterwards what I am not getting here. But if I have to imagine that my, my seven-year-old daughter, uh, let's say, gets ill with, you know, with, a, with a sort of a rare and aggressive form of leukaemia and medically speaking, it's ironclad. She's got three months to live, what will I do as a disciple of Jesus? What would you do? Tell you what I do. I think I'll do. 
I'll pick a date. I'll pick a time. Saturday, whatever, 10 a.m. And I'm going to invite the elders of my church. As scripture asks me to, to come and lay their hands on my daughter and pray for healing. So that if God chooses to use this sign or this wonder to bring many to turn to him and believe herself included that he would do so. But I'll do this being very mindful of the times in which I live. I don't live in the fullness of the kingdom of God yet. I live in the area of tension. <laughs> you say, but I hate tension. You're right. It's against our nature of humanity to want tensions. We, we love it black and white on this side or on that side and yet God doesn't give us that. And you might say, that is so despairing. That does not motivate me to pray. It doesn't, it doesn't give me any kind of zeal to approach these things with confidence. It just seems like you're almost parking everything in this idea of tension and mystery and there's really nothing to be done for the Christian when faced with these sorts of things. Can I leave two things with you and then I'll wrap up of why this is an excellent thing to live in this tension. If you're going to park yourself exclusively in either one of those two corners, you as a child of God will lack an incredible thing respected to each. Here's what it is. If you say, God will not intervene and I should not ask for his supernatural hand to be involved in the affairs of my life, be that for healing, be that for breaking free of addiction, be that from spiritual afflictions, I think your view of God is going to be somewhat distorted. God is a distant entity who, yes, one day might do some things for me, but the reality is for now, for the next 20, 30, 60, 80 years that I'm alive, he has no bearing, no impact, and will not be involved. He's, 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 he's like the, the distant father who's, who's emotionally disconnected, disinterested. He's, he's, he's paid for your retirement, but he's not involved in your life. Right? My son came to me the other day. He said, oh, Dad. Saturday morning, he said, Dad, can we build a gravel pump track in our backyard like at Olveston today? Now, I love the fact that he would come and ask me. It's a tall order. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> and I have no intention to do it. But, but, but would, I, would I have my son not come to me with tall orders, with a full childlike faith that dad can do this? And if dad says no, he's got a good reason for it, right? No, I want my son to come to me. God wants you to come to him. He wants us to know him as, as Abba, as Father, as the one who is all sovereign, all capable. So we ask on that morning or that day or in that text that God would heal. If you sit in the other corner, there's another 
deficiency that you're going to have. The deficiency you're going to have is you're going you're to end up with despair. You know, two weeks ago I read a newspaper article of family, you may have too, in Brisbane. Daughter died. Christian family, I think it was of diabetes. Fully confident that God can and will heal her. Oh, the prayers, the praise, the worship. They took her off her treatments in full confidence. She died. She died. What now? Is there something wrong with my faith? Maybe God's not even real. And if he is real, maybe he doesn't love me. You see? Both these things have problems. And yet, if you can sit somehow in the middle and you can come, our problem is we think that we've got to be one or the other. We do not have to be one or the other. We can be and we must be, I believe, both. There's an incredible story in the Bible and remarkably it's from the Old Testament. It's not even in the New Testament of three blokes, Sadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You might know the story if you're a Christian. But anyway, they got a, they're forced by this pagan king to worship him and whenever there's instruments going off, they need to bow down and worship and whoever does not gets thrown in a 1,200 degree oven. And their response to this king, to Nebuchadnezzar, is incredible. I think they bring this tension together strikingly for us. They say, O king, we will not bow down to you because we believe our God is able to save us and he will deliver us from your hand. But if he does not, he'll still not bow down. You see what they do? They bring these two things together. And I implore you, I implore myself that as we pray, as we do mission, as you pray for others, as we pray for others in the shed, as we do it here, that we will take these two things as each a hand of prayer and we'll put them together and we will pray. That God would move us away from perhaps whichever corner we sit in, but give us such faith that he can, he's able, he will. And yet, even if he does not, for us, there remains the hope of the future. Can never perish. You see, you, you really can't lose. You can't lose in this tension. You're going to get it now, you're going to get it later. Right? And I think, I think... This is the best way for us to, to walk with this. That's a diagram, just you and I live here. Jesus has come, spirit is here, he's raised from the dead, but you know, it's only when he comes back that all these things come in absolute fullness. In the meantime, we're here. Sometimes God only knows when and why. A couple of quotes. Christian must hold to that tension because to veer either side leads one to despair. I don't have enough faith or hopelessness. God is powerless to help me, neither of which is true. Tim Keller, God's kingdom is present in its beginnings, but it's still future in its fullness. This guards us from an, forgive the word there, an under-realised eschatology, expecting no change now, or an over-realised eschatology, expecting all change now. In this stage... Listen to this last bit. We embrace the reality that while we're not yet what we will be, we're also no longer what we used to be. While you're not yet who you will be and what you will be, 
you're also not what you used to be. It's a wonderful quote. That wraps up that point. And now let me finish. I don't have much more to do. Fascinating as this whole issue is, it's not the main part of this story. I've got the luxury to sit on it for a whole sermon because we're leaving a lot of Sundays to deal with acts. Uh, so that means we can answer some of these questions or at least grapple with them a bit better. The reality is in the main storyline of Acts, those early Christians didn't grapple with this stuff. They just kind of, this was business as usual. They lived in the tension, <laughs> expected great things from God and they accepted his will if uh, it wasn't what they wanted. <laughs> the main news in this whole story is the fact that Peter is in Lydda and he's in Joppa and moreover, he's starting to stay at the end of the passage there at a tanner named Simon. Now, all of this goes totally lost on us, but in Jewish context, this is the beginnings of incredible change in the life of this man, Peter. Because the mission that God has for his church, the purpose that he has for the life of his people, is going to lead them to have to change. The purpose that God has for your life is going to lead you to have to change. The purpose that God has for our church is going to lead us to have to change. God is gracious. He lets that change happen gradually, but it happens. Peter's in Lydda. Peter's in Joppa. Next two weeks, he's going to go some other places that he never thought he would go, do some things that he never thought he would do. And some writers go as far as to say, what we're going to see in the next two weeks is really the second conversion of Peter. So drastic is what happens here that you can call it almost like a second conversion. Quote, unquote. The same will be true for us in our growth with Jesus. Let me leave it there and pray for us. I'm going to, I'm going to say two things before I pray. Um, I'm going to pray for you. If you seek healing, I ask you to just echo that prayer in your heart. But I'm asking that you keep in mind what we said this morning, that you know the time in which you live. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to talk to me. Afterwards, talk to us. One of the things I think that we can grow in as a church is to step to a greater reality into this middle space where we pray. We ask for God's hand to perform incredible signs and wonders unto the faith and repentance of those who we seek to hold the gospel out to. But we do so knowing where we live. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, our constant failure as frail, creaturely human beings, is that we do not understand your greatness. We do not understand the full size and scope of your authority, of what you can and have come to do, of what you have begun, and of what you still intend to do. We confess openly that we often struggle when it comes to the divisive ideas of, of, of signs and wonders. Lord, we confess that we often come to this issue with wrong motives, selfish motives, thinking only here and now. Will you change us, Lord? Will you grow us? 
Well, you might each of us exceptional followers of you and this an exceptional church of you, of people who would come to you with all our requests in full faith of who you are, your ability, your love, your fatherliness to us, your care. And yet, and yet, will you give us such a trust also in your ways that are higher than ours, your timing that is better than ours, your promises that is more certain than anything else we face. Let us live in this tension like Sadrach's, Meshach's, Abednego's. And to that end, Father, I, I bring to you each, all and any who are here this morning who are asking you to heal them, who are struggling with infirmities, with pain, with illness, who are suffering immensely. Lord, will you heal them? And yet, Lord, if not, we resign and we commit with such a firm faith that you will restore our bodies. You will restore our minds. You will restore our relationships. You will restore all our thoughts, all our actions. Thank you that you're such a God, giving such promises with such certainty. And we pray all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks.